This podcast is brought to you by SMA, where capabilities extend beyond the manufacturing of intelligent inverters to the expert care and maintenance of your PV equipment. With services such as grid emulation, commissioning, extended warranty options, and scalable plant-wide O&M, SMA is the partner of choice for your PV projects. Find out more at sma-america.com. For the week of December 9th, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. This week, we are live from San Diego, California at Green Tech Media's very own U.S. Solar Market Insight Conference. I am Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media. And let's hear it from the solar pros out there. Give a little bit of energy to the folks back home listening. Uh, we've got a couple really good days lined up, and uh, of course, we're all excited for NBA Hall of Famer, basketball legend Bill Walton to take the stage. He's going to be talking about his love for solar with uh, my colleague and our editor-in-chief, Eric Wessoff. And as I was planning this show, I thought, you know, if we're going to have a basketball legend up here talking about solar, maybe we can flip the table and have a bunch of solar and energy folks talk about basketball. So for the next 45 minutes, I'm going to grill these folks about their basketball knowledge. And Commissioner Picker, will start with you. What was the better part of Bill Walton's career, when he was with the Portland Trailblazers or the Boston Celtics? When he got arrested sitting in and on, uh, on Westwood Boulevard against the Vietnam War. <laughs> All right, well, we're not going to talk about basketball here. We, <laughs> we, we don't have any... The USA, the USC game. <laughs> We have no Hall of Famers up here that I know of, um, but we do have a pretty all-star lineup of energy experts, and we're going to stick to what we know. Uh, in this case, solar and storage, again, a topic that is on everyone's lips these days. Uh, so let's introduce the panelists and get into the conversation. As usual, I have my co-host here. Catherine Hamilton is a co-founder and partner with 38 North Solutions. She's in D.C. with me. They, 38 North is a clean tech public policy firm, and she's also a storage wonk. She is the policy director of the Energy Storage Association. Catherine, how are you? Uh, what kind of messes are you dealing with on the policy front right now? Well, Congress is right now wrestling with the Cromnibus, which sounds like a multi-headed monster of some sort, but it's the um, combined uh, continuing resolution and omnibus bill that will keep our government running till the end of September. Mm. Jigger Shaw is another uh, co-host. He is uh, known in the solar industry as the founder of Sun Edison, and he's got a new venture with a few colleagues called Generate Capital. They're trying to apply the solar services model to uh, underserved but commercially ready technologies. How are you? How are things going with that new venture? It's going great. I've, I've been following the basketball you know, synergies with the, the uh, uh, William and Kate you know, fiasco there in uh, Brooklyn. They, they, got so. to, they got to meet King James. They did, LeBron they James, did, yeah. and they sat next to Queen Bee. <laughs> uh, well, you know, when you're a basketball star, you get to meet everybody. So, uh, so let's meet our special guests who are going to help us walk through this sol solar storage topic. Uh, Matteo Jaramillo is the director of Tesla's power, uh, powertrain business, and he is also leading their stationary storage business. Um, Matteo, thanks for joining us. We have a lot of folks out there who actually listen to the podcast. You are a listener of the podcast, correct? Correct, yeah. Uh, and we have a lot of uh, 
Tesla fanboys and fangirls, and I'm curious, to those listening, what's the most interesting or coolest perk you get working at Tesla? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the perk. The perk. Uh, Tesla's not really known for its perks, I would say. Uh, so no free cars, unfortunately. No, uh, you know, no, no free rides in the SpaceX rockets or anything like that. Uh, I saw it, you do have uh, cereal in the kitchen that people can... <laughs> yes. Shape have have you ever been to Google? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the greatest perk is, is working on the mission. Yeah. True. Well, we'll hear more about that. Thank, thanks for coming on. And uh, California Public Utilities Commissioner Michael Picker <laughs> is also with us. He joined the CPUC in January of this year after uh, five years as the Senior Renewable Energy Advisor for the Governor. Commissioner Picker, thanks for being here. Thank you. What are the best perks working at the CPUC? Lots of meetings. <laughs> as many as you can handle. Well, glad to add another one to the schedule here. All right, so um, we're going to break this discussion up into three parts, as we usually do. Uh, the first, we're going to talk about where Tesla sees the opportunity for storage beyond automobiles. And of course, we're at a solar conference, so we're going to talk about how stationary storage uh, will work with solar. Then we're going to dig into how California and other states are thinking about the solar storage combo on a regulatory level. And in our final segment, we will ask, is solar plus storage the ultimate mortal threat to utilities or the ultimate business opportunity? Mateo, we'll start with you. Um, tell us a little bit about where stationary storage stacks up with EV storage. So you've got a massive gigafactory underway that everyone has heard of outside of Reno, Nevada, when at, uh, at the end of the decade, potentially have 50 gigawatt hours of battery packs pumped out, you know, more capacity than the entire world had online last year. How much will be devoted to stationary applications and how much will be to EVs? Uh, well, it's, uh, it, it's sort of an evolving uh, answer, I would say. But um, for now, anyway, the, the current uh, estimation is that uh, somewhere around a quarter, maybe, uh, of the output of that entire gigafactory will go to, to this stationary market that we're talking about. Um, but we don't necessarily think about these as two sort of divergent markets or, or two you know, non-related lines of business. As a matter of fact, they're, they are inherently related. That's why we're doing both of them. Um, and so for us, the, the work that we're doing in the stationary storage world um, is very much uh, in line with the work that we're doing on the automotive side of it. Um, and there's uh, so much that carries over from, from the automotive into the stationary world, um, uh, just from an engineering architectural standpoint, but also from a mission standpoint. Um, you know, that's, that's the, the antecedent for all of this is, is that Tesla was founded to sort of uh, uh, move the world to a more sustainable form of transportation as quickly as possible. Um, and the, the conclusion on that part of it, uh, on, the, on part of Elon, the other founders of Tesla, was that um, that would be best done through electric vehicles. Um, and of course, electric vehicles are inherently connected to the grid at some point. Um, and so if we're only paying attention to what's happening on the vehicle side and ignoring what's happening on the charging of the vehicle side, um, then that's not truly fulfilling the mission of, of the company. And so um, that's why we're doing uh, the work in the stationary uh, side of things, is to um, make sure that, that all of the advances that, that can be had uh, on the electric grid, just making it more efficient, uh, more clean, uh, more sustainable over time, um, as can be enabled by energy storage, um, that we're doing our part in that regard. So um, those are all, you know, it's, it's a very, um, at least internally, it's a very coherent uh, uh, activity that we're doing um, uh, with respect to the vehicle side and the, and the stationary battery side. And then, and then 
What kind of potential do you see paired up with solar systems? Oh, well, there's a lot of potential. Um, but do you have any good numbers? How does that fit into the broader stationary strategy? Well, I think it depends on, on the market, frankly. Um, you know, some markets, for example, take Hawaii. Uh, I mean, at this point, you know, essentially all new uh, interconnected uh, PV going forward, um, I shouldn't say all, but a great majority of it will, will contain storage of some, of some kind. Um, that's not, of course, true in California for right now. Um, uh, Germany, however, will, will increasingly go in that direction um, because it's economical. So it really depends on, on what the market is. You know, from a market needs standpoint, um, you know, I think it's probably early to say that any, any individual market must have storage paired with PV in it. Uh, but I think that there are pockets of, of economic opportunity where it does make sense to do it and, and just do it anyway. Um, and that's where it will happen first. And uh, we see the market just sort of growing very quickly um, uh, along those uh, different, uh, different areas. Um, but you know, there will come a time when we're reaching you know, very high penetrations of, of solar or wind, for example, uh, when maybe we do need storage to be paired with that and, uh, for, for sort of overall grid stability and support. Um, but those days are, are, are yet down the road. Um, there's a lot of things to be done in the meantime. I think that's an important point, though, that he made at the end there, which is that I, I constantly find myself reading news articles that claim that the reason why storage is booming right now is because of solar and wind needing to be firmed up. And that is completely untrue. Uh, the reason we have a huge boom in storage is because AES has figured out eight years ago that the entire movement towards natural gas peaker plants in this country was a waste of money because a lot of those plants were running 20, 40, 50 hours a year. And that storage was way more cost effective to provide flexibility to the grid than natural gas peaker plants that are running 40, 50 hours a year. And so now you've got Southern California Edison coming out and saying, we agree, we think Sempra doesn't know what they're doing, and that we actually think that storage is a better way of replacing our San Onofre nuclear plant whole um, more cost effectively. Well, to be fair, that was a requirement. Well, no, but it was required as well of Sempra to do the right thing by their shareholders, and they decided, you know, or sorry, their ratepayers, and they decided to do what's better for their shareholders and not their ratepayers. But you can replace the centralized peaking plant in a couple different ways uh, using storage, right? It doesn't have to be sort of a centralized storage plant. You could have decentralized storage as well. And, and, uh, oh, I think was SE did that, though, in some of their... Yeah, yeah, precisely. But, uh, you know, the flexibility of the, of the technology allows you to, you know, that, that is where you could pair solar with, with storage um, as a peaking resource specifically, right? But on a distributed uh, basis. And, and that's also where um, you know, the rate structures and the rate design all plays into it as well. Right? In, in yeah, theory. I just think it's clear, though, that solar and wind you know, are not sort of the reason why storage is taking off. Right? Sure. Storage yeah. is taking off because it makes a ton of sense to add flexibility to the grid in this way. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about that, too, relative to where you see the best geographic markets are, because they may not necessarily be where the best solar markets are, but where there are some other factors at play that would, that would really um, value flexibility. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I hate to sound mealy-mouthed about this, but it really depends on, on which type of market you're going after. Uh, you know, there are certain markets for, for behind-the-meter storage, for example, where you obviously look for high-demand chargers. And, and for that, it's California, it's New York, it's, and it's other pockets of, of, the, of the country. Um, there's also international markets where that's relevant. Uh, but if it's, uh, you know, just providing the peaking resource, for example, you know, people are still being, planning on building peaking plants all over the country, right, um, and around the world. And so it, it's all of those places, right? Um, and uh, so it, there, I would say that there's, 
everywhere we look, there's an opportunity for storage. <laughs> you know, uh, I think there's been a lot of enthusiasm around the Gigafactory, and there's also been some skepticism as well. Some analysts saying we don't see the demand uh, for electric vehicles or for grid storage applications that Tesla does that would warrant such a big build out of the factory. What are you seeing that uh, the skeptics are not? Well, I, Tesla has never been demand constrained. Um, we've always only ever been supply constrained. Um, and uh, in many cases, if people, they don't really know how to predict what they're going to want in the future. Um, so Tesla's idea is to build a compelling product, and we think that the market will be there for that. Uh, you know, we're, we don't sort of go line by line rebutting critics, I guess, on this stuff. <laughs> I'll I just add that, that I think that's an important issue from the, the state of California's perspective. We have ambitious goals for electrification of our transportation system. We have very ambitious goals for utilities procuring um, battery storage and, and other storage techniques. And I think one of the big challenges we face right now is that if you couple all that together, there's just not enough production in the world to actually meet our goals short term. So I think that from our perspective, the more production opportunities there are out there for people to, to buy from, the more likely we are going to hit our greenhouse gas goals and, and be able to use these technologies. If not, then we'll probably see people pursuing some other uh, pathway towards greenhouse gas reduction. But Commissioner, with all the meetings that you guys have on a regular basis, I'm curious, you know, what we're talking about here with the Southern California Edison, you know, sort of storage RFP and then the RFOs that have come out recently, as well as, you know, many of the other markets that Mateo's talking about globally, is a fundamental shift in, the ho in how we actually want to run our grid, presumably because we can get to higher percentages of renewable energy or other things. And I'm curious whether, you know, where is the best information that you guys rely on coming from? Is it Department of Energy? Is it EIA? Is it private sector sources and reports from Green Tech Media? I mean, how do you, how do you get your arms around what the best framework is for the next and 20 years? And if you've years? ever heard Jigger talk about EIA, don't say EIA. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think that it's any specific source. I, I think that from our perspective, it's, it's, a, it's a, a welter of potential consumer choices. And we don't know what consumers are going to prefer. We don't know what the pricing is going to be when they start to make those choices. What we do know is our job is to eventually build out the low voltage distribution grid so that it's as friction free and operable around these distributed choices. I, I have to say that, that everything about that concept is antithetical to what it is that we do as, as, as regulators. It is you distribute all these renewable energy resources, which we have to do to meet our, our, our 2030 and 2050 goals, you're distributing the political power to actually shape that. You're distributing the consumer power to shape all that. So we're as much along for the ride as everybody else. And if you think anybody out there has the idea, I would love to talk to them just to find out whether they're real or not, because about half the people I talk to are still struggling themselves to figure this out. So, you know, we have a long ways to go even to figure out what the next set of procurement is to enable those technologies that are most ready for market and the consumers want. We have to figure out how we operate the system for reliability purposes, simply because nobody wants to be the one who's blamed for bringing down the California grid. Um, so there's a lot of work to be done, and I don't know that anybody has the answers or even 
reliable answers. We're going to have to test our way into this world. Um, so as you work on the distributed resource plan in California, how do you manage the many, many voices involved, given the complexity of the situation that you just outlined? Well, one of our challenges is actually getting them to come talk to the California Public uh, Utilities Commission. For a lot of people who are in the tech sphere, coming to that kind of a, of a very procedural and, and legally bound forum is not easy. So uh, I'll just point to the Smart Inverter Working Group, which is a way that we got a lot of engineers who really understand some of these issues together to talk about what it meant to bring smart inverters into the system and how we actually come up with some common standards. And that's, that actually didn't happen directly through the California Public Utilities Commission, although we've supported it and we've treated it as, as a product of the state of California. It actually happened through the California Energy Commission. And I want to thank them for actually financially supporting that effort. Eventually, we'll bring the products into the PUC. But I can't imagine that anybody who's struggling to build a business in, in this kind of a really volatile world wants to spend a lot of five years at the PUC with a lot of lawyers cross-examining them to be able to, to get to an eventual market. I think it's just we're going to have to find new ways to actually find those people, bring them to the table, figure it out, and then, and then go test it. Similarly, we've been working with a bunch of clean tech groups to really figure out how we make decisions about investments in the distribution grid that get us from where we are to something that's fairly friction-free and, uh, and basically plug-and-play. You bring your technology to a customer, they make a decision, it goes into the system, it's recognized, the system continues to operate. That, and, and we get the optimal value both for the customer and for operating the grid. We're a long ways away from understanding how to do that. Anybody here who thinks they've got the answer, I want to talk to you afterwards. But we've got a ways to go, and we are not the most likely place for people who are building businesses in this sphere to come and want to spend a lot of time. So we have to chase people. Well, it is something, though, that the solar industry, particularly in California, I think has done a good job of. I mean, ever since you know, sort of the 03, 04 time frame, and they've been actively hiring, you know, lobbyists and regulatory folks, et cetera, to like, you know, to make sure that that education occurs. It seems like electric vehicle guys as well, I think, have been quite savvy in that area. I'm not quite sure that the data automation people and some of the others have been as, as um, proactive in that area. I think they sort of believe that their libertarian streak actually goes far farther than it does. Um, and, you know, it, it is true. I mean, all of our work is really underpinned by regulation and data and government uh, government and you know having a blind spot in that area and not investing in making sure that education uh, occurs uh, means bad things for your business but from a storage perspective I mean the playbook is already there right so so the PV playbook got got rolled out right and, and just to take one one slice of that on the interconnection side um, you know, there is a process for interconnecting batteries right now. It's not perfect. It's getting improved. Um, each IOU has a slightly different take on what the PUC has told them to implement. Um, and, uh, and so you, you can do that. Right? We're, Tesla's currently getting batteries interconnected right now. It takes longer than probably it should, and it costs more than maybe it has to. Um, but uh, there's certainly ways that, that we would recommend that that, that process go faster. 
and part of it, again, is, is taking the learnings from the, from the solar world, which, which streamlined the heck out of the interconnection process, especially for certain sizes and especially for certain applications. And I think that the storage world would benefit tremendously from doing something similar on, on, uh, on interconnection, um, partially because right now it's early days and, and the numbers of, of interconnection requests are, are relatively small, uh, but that will change very, very quickly. Um, and it's not hard to imagine, you know, in the very near future, there being basically an, an overwhelming number of requests that simply cannot be processed uh, in time mm -hmm. because because the, the the current method for reviewing, accepting, and turning around the interconnection application is is not sufficient for for the scale at which we're going to operate. So I agree with you, Commissioner Picker. We need to just we need to do things to get them in the ground and learn from them, but. Um, you know, we need to turn those cycles very quickly because the, this world is changing faster. The, you know, the, the velocity of, of this particular, you know, asset class going into the market is, is going to be faster than, than it took um, solar, for example. Well, it'll be a challenge because a lot of our, our deadlines are set by statute. And so, you know, you may feel like people are getting better at lobbying, but from somebody who's been in government for a long time, I got to say, you got a ways to go. From our side, we learn how, need to learn how to make a lot of small mistakes faster so that we can improve the system. Well said. So Jigger talked about SCE's big storage procurement. And um, as part of its um, procurement to make up for the closed San Onofre plant, uh, they had a, a requirement to, to uh, procure 50 megawatts of storage, but ended up procuring about 250 megawatts. What does that tell you about the economics of storage and the preparedness of the industry to compete here in California, that SCE went out and said, we can do you know, four or five times more storage than our, the requirement? Well, uh, first I'll say that it's not about San Onofre. We had already, we'd already met some of the challenges of San Onofre. It's actually a whole series of uh, Korean War era natural gas plants that are not fast ramping. They're really old. They're really polluting. They're really rickety that are going to close on a schedule because they have water quality implications and heat up coastal waters and destroy habitats. So I think that's the bigger target. And I think that within that, we need to really figure out how do you do this on a more granular level? It may be that as a big market, Germany or some other nation, some other state, like Hawaii actually has more immediate value. But there are lots of places within the California grid where, where we also have constraints that probably should be able to be priced to give an advantage to anything from demand response to time of use rates to uh, electrical vehicle charging that, that's susceptible to a time of use rate to battery storage to rooftop solar to uh, a 1,500 rooftop solar arrays with a, with a smart inverter, they can start to actually curtail um, their generation to be able to provide some voltage regulation and maybe some reactive power. So the, the world is pretty complex out there already. All these things are somewhat feasible and they're there before us, but they all are gonna play differently when you match them against each other and depending upon where they sit in the low voltage grid. So this is part of the challenge of operability and then pricing. And so for, from, my, from our perspective, again, we got a long ways to go. This is the kind of stuff that we talk to Hawaii and New York about is how do you begin to price these things? What does it mean to have a market where these, these 
these resources aren't competing against the utility so much as they're competing against each other. How do you begin to figure out where they have the most value in the grid in terms of avoided future costs? Where do you think the demand is going to be 10 years from now? How does this all start to work together? Yeah, and similar to the way FERC Order 755 on the bulk side recognized speed and accuracy and paid for that performance um, for frequency regulation, you need to do that on the distribution side as well and say, all right, what are the characteristics that your grid needs and what is the value that those characteristics provide agnostic of technology? Those technologies will come. We've got people building those technologies. The issue but is what do you need for your grid to run? The bulk transmission system is operated much more as a network and rarely is the distribution system designed or operated as that kind of a network where you can bring all these resources to the table and match them and pair them. So again, for us, it's a little bit of the challenge. How do you begin to make all these things work together? Because they're happening well, fast. Yeah, but one of the answers to that is that in this room, there are a number of companies here who specialize in data. And what you found was in the 2007 California Solar initiative that you know we all passed um, there was a requirement that we as a solar industry even for residential systems had to be able to provide real-time data to the utility the utilities still are incapable of actually implementing that data into their grid operations feed at some point I mean when is it incumbent upon the California Public Utilities Commission to sanction the utilities for basically not implementing just basic data management, right? And so, so now when they say, well, we have this huge blind spot, these damn solar people are actually generating power and we don't know what's happening. Well, it's not because we didn't actually provide the data to you. It's because your system is programmed in COBOL and you refuse to upgrade it so you can actually implement it. Always blame it on IT. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's one of those things where I think that Catherine's right. I think when you look at the paper that John Wellinghoff has written on the discos with Catherine and others, I think that we actually are in a place now where we have the ability to be able to manage um, these resources on a real-time basis at the local level. But the problem is, is that it's impossible to provide price signals at that local level unless someone is actually paid to collect that data and then actually use that data for decision-making and providing price signals. I, I just think that the whole thing is so clunky right now, and people are saying, oh, but Jigger, why don't you guys figure out a way to spend billions of dollars on, on deploying demand response or load control or energy storage or whatever else, but the price signals come from a 20-year capacity contract from Southern California Edison. Well, I will give you copies of our demand response protocol, which the utilities will be filing next June. I'll give you a copy of the green uh, uh, tech uh, um, leadership groups uh, um, manual. I hope that you will uh, certainly make those comments as you look at what the utilities well, happy file. Happy to. Because uh, I think that it's not going to happen unless we actually get people to start to make those comments. It's just inherent in the nature of, of regulated monopolies that unless people raise those challenges in the regulatory proceedings, then we don't have the fact basis to make the findings and then we're all susceptible to litigation. Yeah. So I'm, I'm with you. Hope you'll be there next, uh, next <laughs> July. What element of this are you, are you working on at the Energy Storage Association, Catherine, uh, from a, both a utility and state regulatory level and a national level? Where do you guys sort of fit into the picture and what are you really focused on right now? 
It's like what Matteo said, every, everything we see is an opportunity. So whether it's with FERC and we've got three orders through, now we're looking at other ways to monetize the benefits of storage, state proceedings, certainly New York has been a big target. Arizona did this big settlement that's gonna allow for much more storage. Texas is a big market, California, certainly Hawaii. So we look at the state markets as well. So we try to affect certainly FERC and the ISOs. And then, you know, how can we craft some, you know, what are states that are doing it right now that we can learn from? And I will say that another piece that's going to really weigh into this is EPA's greenhouse gas rule. Because next summer, the final rule is going to come out. And that, I mean, you all already have, will have tested driven some of those solutions, but a lot of states are going to be looking for answers mm -hmm. on how do we how do we figure out how to meet this rule um, without driving up prices for consumers. When do you think the California ISO actually puts out um, their final rules to match what the PJM is doing on ancillary services and others that the storage folks can get compensated for? You know, they're working on a roadmap, so that's that's yeah, in process. That's, and I mean, a year have. behind PJM. <laughs> I mean, there should be a date. It should be like we're going to have it done by the end of 2015, right? So then investors can actually start. Well, unfortunately, out what they want to put in. some of the, the same people that you're saying should be actually out there saying the prices came to us in a settlement with the utilities and suggested we put off that date till 2020. The commissioners actually said no, that's unacceptable. We're going to move it back several years. But the reality is, again, that unless people come and challenge that kind of thinking, unless they're active, unless they understand how to make their voices heard in these really oppressive, burdensome, arcane, difficult regulatory processes, then the law will always prefer those kinds of settlements. So I'm just putting it to you guys that somehow or another you have to help us do the right thing. We agree with you, but make us do it. Yeah. All right, let's go into the implications for utilities. So folks like SolarCity's Lyndon Rive and uh, SunPower's Tom Werner have said, in the next seven to 10 years, we think almost every solar, residential solar system in the US will have storage paired with it. How does that match up with what Tesla sees, Mateo? What do you, what do you any response to those uh, very bold statements? Uh, I, I, mean, I think they're correct, yeah. um, but I'm also not a utility, uh, so <laughs> uh, I'm not going to represent the utility point of view. Um, but I think that the, the, the pace of the technology uh, advancement in terms of performance and cost um, you know, leads to a conclusion that, that is along those lines. Um, so you know, the, the focus that we have uh, as a technology developer and as a, as a vendor into the storage market is to make sure that we're developing products um, that are flexible enough to go into any of the applications um, that will ultimately win out as far as uh, the market acceptance goes. So, um, you know, th those prognostications, you know, nobody's saying th that exactly what that storage will be doing, right? It's just sort of presuming that there's going to be a certain cost and there's going to be a certain opportunity and the, and the two things will sort of perfectly get paired up. But I, I think there's definitely still some work to, to actually make those two things line up uh, as well as you need to, to in order to make that, that statement true. Um, so the, there's a lot of innovation that's happening on the business side, of course, and you know the SCE procurement um, sort of hints at some of that. Uh, you know, different approaches that we're taking to fulfilling essentially the same same requirement. Um, and so there's, the, you know, we see a, a lot of that continue to happen. And you know, our focus is on is on the technology development and and on making a very flexible uh, product. Yeah, I mean, folks who talk about residential batteries, right? I mean, I think are fundamentally not thinking straight, right? When you think about how this marketplace works, 
the reason why commercial systems are doing batteries first and not residential is because they pay demand charges. And so by putting in a storage system, you have the ability to get a revenue stream by saving them demand charges. That's not something you can do in the residential space. So if you decide that you want to put residential battery backup in because you feel like you want to make sure that you have power if the grid goes down, then you actually have to either want to pay for that upfront, which is not de minimis, or you actually have to have a market by which to bid that capacity into the market like intelligent generation does or others, and so you can actually get paid for it, right? So if you decide to have 12 hours of battery storage or 24 hours of battery storage or whatever it is, then it's not a dead asset sitting there that only yeah. gets used twice a year, but you actually have the ability to bid that capacity in by ganging it together with other residential folks into the market, which again is why you need a price signal from the California ISO or somebody else. Otherwise, there's nobody that I know of on a systematic basis that would possibly think that residential is where you'd start on the solar yeah. battery combination. And we discussed yeah, I, that. I would say though that, that um, there's a lot of Germans who, who are pushing ahead on. on no, no, but the Germans are, look, I mean, I'm consulting those guys, right? DZ4 and all those guys. The reason that they're doing it is because the feed-in tariff is 17 cents a kilowatt hour, and if you actually decide to put in storage, you can actually save the entire 32 cents a kilowatt hour. So there's a real economic incentive for them not to sell their power onto the grid and get paid for it there, but to store it in their batteries and actually use it internally. Um, and there's also an opportunity to flatten their load by using you know, Nest thermostats and all the other stuff to actually you know, limit the amount of total use of the battery so you can limit the size of the battery. But there's an entire logic to this. So I think folks who are just randomly saying that five years from now we're going to have solar plus battery are either not thinking this through clearly or are just hyping up their own stock. Now what do you think about the proposal from the Salt River Project in Arizona to establish fairly high demand charges for residential customers in order to encourage them to uh, install west-facing panels, uh, battery storage systems, and shift their load? The solar industry has always been really good at taking incentives. We're like, you know, Pavlovian dogs and, you know. So yeah, but I this, mean, I mean, but I mean, this like, type look, of change If they pay me more to go west, I'm going to go west. But <laughs> I mean, like, go west, but, young but man. But that's a hint at possibly what's to come as people look at changing net metering policy. No, but this whole thing industry. is, look, I mean, I'm like, I'm so sick and tired of all these sort of linear conversations. If the electric utility company actually respected us as an asset class, they would actually think this stuff through. And they would say, we have certain distribution feeders that are weaker than others. We would like for you to put solar on those distribution feeders. If you do that, we will pay you more or we will do other things. But instead, we have these conferences where the electric utility is sitting in the audience saying, God, that would be such a great idea, and nothing comes of it. I mean, in New York, we've mandated that the, all of the utilities actually say, these are the feeders that are the weakest ones. And we will give you a 20% increase in the subsidy from NYSERDA if you put it on those feeders. Still, you know, like very, very little data is provided by the electric utility companies around which feeders are actually weak. They, I, 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 at this point, I have to conclude that they actually don't know which feeders are actually weak. And, and so that's why they actually can't tell us, even though NYSERDA has a process by which to pay a premium to solar systems that are on that feeder. I just think that at some point, we are so easy to manipulate. All we want is to chase money. 
Like, we're happy. If you pay us a little extra to go west, we'll go west. If you tell us to put it on this distribution feeder, we'll put it on this distribution feeder. But this notion that we should have these like intellectual conversations about how the solar industry could better integrate with the utility industry without the utility industry going 5% of the way to actually making that a reality is not a conversation worth having. Grid defection. People talk about solar in storage causing grid defection. Certainly not a, uh, a favorable economic outcome um, for utilities or for customers. Does anyone think that grid defection is a possibility in certain utility territories in any meaningful way? Hawaii. I mean, <laughs> the people are defecting in Hawaii. I have a friend who lives there who has nothing to do with the energy sector, and she pays $500 a month on her electric bill, and she has a solar panel uh, that is not interconnected yet. I mean, that's a problem. That makes her not want to be um, paying the $500 a month and not wanting to be on the grid. Commissioner so. Picker, is that sort of, does that term come up in your long-term planning? No, I think we gave up talking about that a couple of years ago. <laughs> I think we talked more about the need for rate restructuring in California, but that's not the principal driver. It's an issue. And I think we talk about how we actually do exactly what you're saying. Where are the places in the grid where there's, there's extra value, and how do we begin to price that? And so I think that's probably more of a topic. But, you know, any, any, any good news uh, writer will look for a conflict in a simple narrative and, and stick with it until it's, it's a better narrative comes along. So I'm speaking, sure it's speaking of that, that type of narrative, let's talk about uh, you know Tesla and Solar City as the utility killer, right? You know the numerous stories have come out on that that topic in, in one form or another, uh, and then I think Tesla and Solar City and others have been very clear about saying we want to be the utilities partner in this. You know we don't want to encourage good defection. Um, do you want to expand on that? I mean, do, how do you see yourselves versus how reporters or others might see you as, as the utility slayer? There, well, there, let me clear it up. There, there's no meetings in candlelit rooms with, with <laughs> roads, you know, plotting the demise of the utility industry. That's not, not how it happens. Of course there's no candles. <laughs> there are LED lights. <laughs> it's, it's LED flashlights. Yeah. No superhero outfit at Comic-Con? <laughs> Utility Slayer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I mean, yes, we, we obviously work with, with Solar City, and there, you know, there, there's literally a relation there. Um, but you know, we work with a lot of people in the industry, and including with utilities. Uh, you know, the battery devices are, you know, they can be a bit of a Rorschach test, right? P people see in them what they want to see, and they see the opportunity that they, that they are sort of able to conceive of. Um, and so we're we're pursuing opportunities both you know direct to utilities as well as with channel partners like Solar City, um, and I think the utility model will will evolve. And and for example, you know the proposition that Encore put forth um, in Texas would never fly in New York, right? Yeah. The, the 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 PSC would just tell them to to you know pack it up and go home if they brought that proposal uh, in the state of New York, but in Texas, you know there's going to be a process on this. Um, so I think that it's, you can't use quite as broad brush to say the utility model because it is evolving at different rates uh, and in different ways in different parts of the country. And that's one of the great things about sort of the 50-state approach on, on uh, there's downsides, of course, but that's one of the good things about, about the approach to, to uh, regulation in the utility industry. Um, so, you know, 
I think that each utility also, you know, the, the smart ones will figure out ways to adapt, um, and, and the good ones are already trying new things, and they're already, you know, on the deregulated side of things, uh, moving into new territories and trying new business models, and, and I think that that's, that's going to persist. Um, and, you know, the, it's not written yet whether utilities, you know, will always be up in opposition to, say, rooftop solar, right? There's, um, you know, I, I'm not going to speak for them, but, you know, there are opportunities that they could, they could take going forward. Um, and likewise, from Solar City perspective, you know, those guys, I'm glad I don't have to compete with them. They are innovative and, uh, you know, they're, they're very aggressive and they're going to find out new ways to make their model work um, in, in pretty much any market. Mm. And you're going to be pretty agnostic in how you deploy storage, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Wherever, wherever it can be best, you know, most economically used and to make sure that the grid is as efficient as possible, that's where we're going to get it deployed. The one thing, though, is that grid defection was a really interesting way to force utility boardrooms to have a conversation. Yeah. And so when RMI's paper hit and then Barclays basically used it as an excuse to downgrade all the bonds in the utility sector, it basically forced every utility boardroom to say, Ugh, I guess we should talk about the fact that there is coming a day that we, if we abuse our customers continually for another two decades, they might actually do something about it. Um, and, and that was an interesting conversation, right? You know, I think a lot of utility CEOs were like, ah, oh, maybe we can't abuse our customers forever, which is why Mateo's saying, like, maybe they will embrace, you know, rooftop solar or something at some point instead of saying that all of us are evil and, you know, not understanding how to help poor people and whatever yeah, other and, lies and they're I, spreading. Yeah, I also think that grid defection, um, you know, generally people are thinking of sort of the residential grid defector. Um, but, but increasingly, of course, you, you have campuses, you've got yeah. you know, commercial buildings that are moving to essentially microgrids. And this is a big, big uh, uh, trend in Germany as well, where, where you're basically looking at very local, you know, essentially independent grids uh, coming up. And, and, and that's, you know, that, that's really a, a shot across the bow for the utilities, right? Because you know, that's, that's where they are, you know, they, they need to hold on to those customers as, quick, as much as possible because yeah. load growth is an issue. Right? Yeah, lack. I don't think my friend in Hawaii actually does want to cut off because you know, then you lose your electricity. And I think, I think most homeowners would not be comfortable doing that. But I'm very interested in hearing what you all think about community systems, community solar, community storage as, as a way. I mean, the utilities could certainly potentially make money with that as well and as part of their business model, or it could I think uh, that, that there's a whole range of transitions we're starting to see. I mean, it's, it, it hasn't escaped my notice in Sacramento, particularly because I see the billboards by the side of the freeway, but Southern California Edison has uh, acquired a rooftop solar company, and they're actively marketing in Northern California outside their service area. So, <laughs> like Dexterra. You know, again, the question here is what happens if we allow them to compete within their service area, and all of a sudden there's an a institutional interest in solving some of these problems, and does it all of a sudden become a greater source of, of pressure on people who may not necessarily be as nimble? And so what does that mean for the market? How do we ensure that they don't use their other uh, way to the marketplace within their service area to then keep other people out? I mean, so it's a, it's a, a mixed bag. I think that, that we're going to have to wrestle with these things very quickly. Look at NRG and their, their efforts to begin to move into this space. And we face this in a variety of ways. I mean, the whole argument for letting the utilities own 50% of their, their storage mandate is that it brings their capital, their cheap financing, and their, their um, weight in the marketplace 
to these technologies much more quickly. And, well, and, so, actually, and also test to see whether they're actually cost effective. I mean, they failed yes, that test does. with the Fit Ramp program. Yeah. And we'll see whether they you know, fail the test here. So I think that, that, that uh, all these things are, are changing in different ways in different places and under different circumstances. And there, there's, it's very hard to have one national lesson mm -hmm. in California, given the scale and the different microclimates and the design of our grid. It's actually hard to learn one single lesson across the state of California. So how do we distill this down? How do we continue, as I say, making a lot of mistakes more quickly so that we can really develop some, some general principles and begin to apply them? We just have a few minutes left. I know we have some roving microphones. I want to save the last three minutes for anybody who is part of a utility to respond to Jigger. Uh, no, but if we have a couple questions, I want to put a few together. Right in the front. Hi there. Oh, um, there we go. I had a, a question about the opportunity for a second life of used EV batteries in stationary storage. Can anyone speak to that? I think there might be one person who could. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, you know, the question that, that we always ask ourselves is, um, will, a new bat will, will a used EV battery in whatever it is, seven or eight years, um, be cheaper, more cost-effective to integrate into whatever application you try to get into than a brand new battery in that year? Um, and right now, the answer doesn't look like it's yes. Uh, there's, there's somebody here from the Sacramento Municipal Utility District, and I think at one point they were having a discussion about doing that and procuring some of those batteries as a, a test in neighborhood substations. So I don't know whatever came of that, but I think that there are some efforts around that. I don't think that, that most communities and most homeowners have gotten that far in terms of their thinking. The, the option really isn't tangible and real for them, but, but I think that, that it, at some level, other people have been thinking about it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the vehicle battery you know, value is, is all wrapped up in, in the value of the car, and, and other OEMs have been pushing you know, a high residual value in the car to bump up, uh, sorry, a high residual value of the, of the battery to bump up the residual value of the car to make the lease payments lower. So, you know, there, it's a complicated question. And, and, uh, it, it, I'll just say it's non-trivial to take a battery that's been in use for, for eight plus years or so um, and rip it out mechanically, electrically, communication standpoint, reconfigure it so it's, it's viable again. The other challenge is that most people use batteries as though they're one monolithic technology class. And what you find is that some batteries are actually made for you know, high uh, charge and discharge. Other batteries are made for you know, sort of slow, steady, depth of discharge, et cetera. And so it may be that there's a different technology that is more optimal for that application um, than a vehicle battery. All right, we have to end it there. Thank you all very much. Uh, for those who are listening, you can subscribe to this show on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, on SoundCloud. You can just subscribe to our RSS feed, and every time we upload a new episode, you will get it there. Uh, we also have a sponsor of this podcast, which is SMA. We want to thank them for being a financial supporter of the show. Um, and you can find out... You can look at greentechmedia.com slash podcast where we host all of our back episodes and we have show notes there where you can link through and see all the documents that we discuss on the show. So Commissioner Michael Picker, Mateo Jaramillo, uh, Jigger Shaw, and uh, Catherine Hamilton, thanks very much. Thank you.